2: Along our journey, I came to know members of the media who helped our
3: game grow. People such as Peter King, Jared Bell, John Clayton, John McClain, Chris Morton, Shereen Williams. Also want to make a special mention of Rick Bruce Cobble, one of the greatest writers to ever cover the National Football League in any era. I wouldn't be here without him.
4: That, of course, is one of the newest Hall of Fame inductees. That would be Jerry Jones, class of 2017, and he was there last weekend, thanking one of the previous Hall of Fame inductees, and that would be our Rick Goslin, class of 2004. Hey, Gooseman, that had to make you feel pretty good.
5: Yeah, that was both uh, flattering and humbling. You know, I've, I've been mentioned in some induction speeches in the past, but never in such glowing terms. Jerry Jones, friend of the media, friend of the Goslin family.
4: Oh, well, Ronnie, when Bill Belichick and Tom Brady are
6: inducted to the Hall. I think the chances are that they give you a shout-out. Uh, well, probably better than the chance that I'll get from Al Davis, but he's dead. So <laughs> I would say uh, the other two may be more likely to be shouting at me than shouting about me. Well, if
4: it sounds like Ron is far off, that's basically because he is. That's what the Patriots usually say, but it is because he is. He's in Charlotte
6: this week for the PGA Championship, right, Ronnie? I am. I'm overlooking the stadium. Uh, baseball on one side and the football stadium on the other, and I'll be out at the golf tournament. where. Jordan Spieth, another I'm sure another good friend of uh, Goose's from Dallas, will be trying to become the youngest guy ever to win the career Grand Slam, at the PGA Championship. So it's been pretty exciting, I'd say. That may put him in the Golf Hall of Fame.
4: You know, uh, funny, but uh, Ron, the way things are going for the Goose Man, I think he's going to be running his own tournament someday with Mr. Jerry Jones.
3: How about them, cowboys? yeah? <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. How about them? They were everywhere, Kent, last week for Jerry Jones's induction and. For a party that still might be going on. Whew, whoa, that was fun and loud. Hopefully, we can hear our guests today, and we have former offensive tackle George Koontz on, a guy we think should be in the Hall of Fame conversation but hasn't, as well as another tribute to the historically black colleges and universities with James Harris and Art Shell, both Hall of Famers. We'll also hear from author and Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers on his new book and on last weekend's Hall of Fame celebration. But first, yep, first we must go to commercial. When we return, it's a chance to put the exclamation point on the Hall of Fame weekend. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is Stephon Gilmore, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Start your own color party with colors like champagne and Jubilee. Ask Sherwin-Williams and save 35% on paints and stains during the Love for Color sale, August 11th through the 14th. Your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams paint store is right around the corner. Find it at sherwinwilliams.com save. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.
7: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges, Rick Gosselin, and Clark Judge. They are who we thought they were.
4: Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by GEICO. Just 15 minutes can save you 50% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to geico.com. And you probably should have gone 15 minutes ago. Uh, I mentioned that Rick, Ron, and I were in Canton last weekend, which we were for the Hall of Fame weekend. And even though that was nearly a week ago, Goose, boy, I, I'm still trying to decompress, especially after that drive to the airport, trying to
5: catch a plane. Yeah, with the, with the parties, the press conferences, the inductions, the Hall of Fame packs quite a bit into a 3-day period. Long days, and as we found out last Saturday night, long nights.
4: How about longer nights? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's get to what you liked first about last weekend. Um, Let's go back as far as uh, Thursday night's game, um, even though you might want to save that for my next question, but let's just start first with what you liked about last weekend.
5: I think the best part of this particular weekend every year for me are the friends I'm able to reconnect with, and I had a chance to visit with Jimmy Johnson, Dave Wanstead, North Turner, Tony Dungy, Kirk Gibson, and Jan Stennerud. plus spent some quality time with a couple of the class 27 and Chinese Jerry Jones and Morton Anderson. This is my 44th year covering the NFL, and that's four-plus decades of relationship building in the Hall of Fame Weekend. And it's my annual chance to refresh those friendships.
4: Yeah, I agree with you on that. That's pretty cool. I love seeing you and Ron and the other guys there. But you know what I like most? I
5: like that, but we like more than that is walking through
4: the hall. I mean, I, I swear I know we've done it multiple times, but e- each time feels like the first time. Um have the gallery bus upstairs that's great the black and white photos of Unitas Raymond Berry and Lenny Moore whew, with Weeby Bank of course the Baltimore Colts and of course Ron Goose anyone who's out there the multiple Tom Brady jerseys that are on display and of course Goose on loan from some guy in Mexico <laughs>
5: yeah yeah the, the bus room is where it all starts for me when I return to Canton you know seeing the players I watched on a black and white TV as a kid the, the Joe Schmitz Yale Leary's Night Train Lane's and seen the game's historical figures, the Lombardis, Jim Browns, Joe Namus, and finally the busted players like Carter's reporter and became a part of the voting committee, then enshrine them. Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, Charles Haley, Len Dawson, Buck Buchanan. If you're going to see one thing in Canton, it should be the bust room.
4: No, if you're going to see one thing in Canton, it's the McCann Award winners upstairs. <laughs> Look at the 2004 award winner. That would be R. Rick Goslin. If you're looking for Ron and me... Keep looking <laughs> now, we've gotten that out of the way. Uh, Goose, how about what you didn't, yes, did not like about the Hall of Fame weekend?
5: Uh, the long induction speeches, you know, the Hall of Asian to keep their speeches to 15 minutes or less. But three men in this year's class doubled that. The shortest speech was 18 minutes. yeah you know, the Gettysburg Address lasted only three minutes. You can say what needs to be said in 15 minutes. After all, it is that proverbial 15 minutes of fame, albeit the final 15 minutes for these guys. Yeah,
4: more is not necessarily better. I, I think I'm going to start with the game. I mean, I, I, I see no yeah. reason to play it or see it, and and, the, and I will say the length of showcase events, and you mentioned um, the induction ceremonies. I'd I, I go back to Gold Jacket Dinner, too. I, it meanders, and mostly because there are TV breaks, right. and there are just too many speeches. Um, but I love the induction. I, must admit, I love that Saturday night induction, but... As you mentioned, we had long speeches. Five of the seven speakers went over 25 minutes each, and three of them went over 30. And Goose, that's, that's just too long. For me, you, I think anyone out in TV land, look, I, I know, as people said, these guys have the right to do what they want, uh, mostly because of their crowning achievement, and it's uh, time to thank all those for helping them to get this far. But longer isn't better. I mean, Brett Favre last year, I think, took 36, 37 minutes, and I think that was terrific. I could have listened to another 36, 37 minutes, but that's because he's a masterful storyteller but he's the exception. I mean, Jerry Jones is a masterful storyteller, too. But they're the exceptions. I'd say the, the most memorable speech I remember the last five years, I think you might agree, Goose, that was Fran Tarkenton. You know, he stepped up at the last minute to speak for his friend Mick Tinglehoff on Tinglehoff's induction. Uh, Tarkenton was choked up. And the emotions of the moment were real. I mean, that to me, as you mentioned, was what the Hall of Fame is all about. I think he spoke just over a minute. But you know what? Goose? You never forgot what he said.
5: Yeah, that, that is the, the most memorable moment for me of all the instruction speeches because of the 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 one the, the shortness of it, the brevity of it, and the fact that Tarkinen stepped up, he stepped in. It was it was spontaneous, and you could see the emotion in Tarkinen as well as you could see it in Tinglehoff.
4: Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm going to lob you a softball here, Goose. We opened the last segment with Jerry Jones citing and congratulating you. So here's the softball question. Whom did you enjoy listening to the most?
5: Well, I, I have two favorites, Morton Anderson and Jerry Jones, because there was plenty of humor in both. They both made you laugh, made you smile on what's supposed to be a joyous night. You know, I expected that from Jones, but I didn't really expect that from Anderson. And what's interesting is that Jones had the longest speech of the night and Anderson the shortest.
4: Yeah, that's right. I, I love listening to Jerry Jones, too. He just really knows how to tell a story. I thought Terrell Davis is pretty good, too. I, I, I thought there was a very poignant speech about uh, what his dad meant to him and how hard he tried to prove himself to him. It did remind me of Brett Favre a year ago, and he got choked up then. Uh, Terrell right. Davis didn't. I thought he was pretty good and, and just trying to prove himself and at the end saying, Dad, I know you're up there, um, and looking down saying, You know what? You, you got it right. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. And to hear a son... Say that to his father, I, I think that's terrific. Um, so what was the highlight moment, aside, of course, from Jerry <laughs> citing you? What was the highlight moment?
5: I, I'd say seeing Easley lead off the festivities. I've always said the longer you wait, the more you appreciate. And no one in this class waited longer than the 25 years of Easley. You know, Tony Dungie related a story to me that uh, Easley was certain he was going to be enshrined in, 20, in 2002, wrote up his acceptance speech then. But he wasn't even on the ballot that year, and as the years slid by, he drifted farther and farther away from football's consciousness. He'd all but given up hope that this day would ever come. Well, it did, and I think Ken easily wore a permanent, small all weekend. He also had the best line of the weekend when he told the NFL Network he's going to have to get himself another gold jacket because he's going to wear out the one he's wearing. (laughs) That was pretty good.
4: Classic. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm going to give the answer you didn't, Goose. Uh, To me, it was Jerry singling out writers by name and then telling the world really how we couldn't have made it up there without you i hope people in dallas were listening they should have been i'm sure they were but uh it's rare to have an attorney be as passionate about a media member as jerry was about you
5: yeah i've had a long-standing relationship with jerry dating back to 1990 when i was hired by the morning news to cover the team you know it hasn't always been a smooth sail you know myself and ed warder broke the story of jerry's divorce from jimmy I've been quite critical over the years of Jerry's drafting, but I'll give Jerry credit. He has the thickest skin of anyone I've ever dealt with in journalism. He doesn't care what you say about him, good or bad, as long as you spell cowboys correctly in the headline. He's all about branding, and that's why a guy who hasn't won a Super Bowl in 21 years now has the most valuable sporting franchise in the world. Hey, Gooseman, when do those
4: season tickets arrive in the mail from Jerry?
5: I forget the season tickets. Just send me the parking passes at $100 to park on game day. That's where the real value is. The, the, my media connection will give me the games. I need the parking passes.
4: Okay. Um, <laughs> we needed parking passes at Canton, too. They're getting harder and harder to score each year. Um, yeah. But aside from the parking passes now uh, in, in the wake of, of what we saw last weekend, um, I think one topic that came up again and again was the selection of Terrell Davis. Not because he doesn't belong. He does. Great player. Great career. It was a short career. So, Goose, what, if any, impact does that have on the selection process going forward? I mean, here's a guy who had three and a half great seasons, um, you know, half a year of a great season, an entire year would say a really good season, but really four years, three and a half, really good player. It seems to me it just opened the door for a lot of guys who might have qualified for consideration, except for one thing, and that's their careers were too short.
5: Yeah, well, Pandora's box has been opened. Davis had three Hall of Fame caliber seasons, and going forward, a lot of players are going to want to be judged on their three best seasons, especially the guys whose careers came to prematurely end because of injuries, Sterling Sharp, Priest Holmes, even a Billy Sims. If you had three great seasons, you're going to want in.
4: Well, I, I know you and I were talking the other day about Mark Gastineau and how his numbers compare to another guy Who's had a meteoric short career, though he's still, of course, playing, and that's J.J. Watt. I, I think you asked, or if you asked anyone today, that uh, if J.J. Watt's career would end now, would he be a Hall of Famer? And they'd say, "Oh yeah, sure, of course, absolutely." But Goose, no one would dare bite on Mark Esten. No. One. Yeah, over
5: the first six seasons of Watt's career, he started 83 games and has 76 sacks with two 20-sack seasons. In his first six seasons, Gastineau started 78 games, collected 80 and a half sacks with two 20-sack seasons. Neither player has a Super Bowl ring, so on paper, which candidate is more worthy? But you're right, Clark, th- there's a move to start fitting Watt for a gold jacket, but not a peep of support for Gastineau. And he, right now, he's got the better career.
4: Well, as I said, we're going to get more into the Hall of Fame weekend uh, in the next segment with our next guest. That's Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers of the New York Daily News. And Goosey, just so happens he's written another book called My First Coach. I've got it. It's worth reading. Gary's coming up. it will be coming up right after this.
0: Start your own color party with colors like champagne and Jubilee. Ask Sherwin-Williams and save 35% on paints and stains during the Love for Color sale, August 11th through the 14th. Your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams paint store is right around the corner. Find it at sherwinwilliams.com slash save. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.
7: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges, Rick Gosselin, and Clark Judge. What we're dealing with here is a complete lack of respect for the law.
4: Just a reminder, the Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by Geico, Just 15 minutes. can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to geico.com. And you probably should have gone 15 minutes ago. Hey, our first guest is someone who's familiar to this show and whom we just saw a few days ago in Canton. that's Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers of the New York Daily News and author of the bestseller Brady vs. Manning, of course. Uh, Gary's just written another book, this one entitled My First Coach, He's good, good enough to join us today, and, and Gary, I just got a copy of that book, and I've started it, subtitled, of course, Inspiring Stories of NFL Quarterbacks and Their Dads, and it's really about the lessons I think uh, NFL quarterbacks receive from their fathers off the field, not on it. So, where did the idea come from?
8: Well, it really came from my experiences uh, coaching my, my son uh, in baseball uh, all through the years until he got to high school, and then a much inferior coach than me took over. His high school coach, but the idea was really was his. He just graduated from Michigan, and you know he read my Brady Manning book and thought some of the stories about Tom and Peyton and their dads was pretty cool. And he said, "Why don't you try to expand that and do a book on quarterbacks and their fathers?" So I said, "You know, I really like that idea." I I sold it to my publisher, and
9: uh,
8: about a year and a half later, we have the book that you received in the mail the other day.
5: Gary, if I can flip through the book to just one chapter, which chapter should I read? Which was your best story
8: within a story? Goosh, you got to read them all. I mean, when you send me good. the book, maybe I will. I will. But, you know, the um, the funniest story in the book, I, I think the most compelling chapter is about Phil Sims, who I've known his entire career, but I was not aware that he grew up in a house where his father was an alcoholic. And, and Phil was very forthcoming talking about the effects that had on, on him. And I'm trying to remember now, I think he had seven brothers and sisters. So he was in a small house in Louisville with a father who was uh, very short on compliments, but liked to pick up the bottle every now and then, and, um, you know, made for a difficult childhood. But the, the funniest story in the book was from John Elway. He was either in a sophomore or junior year at Stanford and his dad was coaching at San Jose state. And they played at at Stanford, and San Jose just kicked their butts and beat up John really bad, and he had probably the worst game of his college career. And his mother was in the stands, and his father was on the opposite sidelines uh, yelling for, um, I'm trying to remember who the Stanford coach was at that point, but yelling for him to take him out of the game, and he wouldn't take him out of the game, and you know, John continued to get beat up, and, and Stanford lost by a bunch. After the game, John meets on the field with his father, who asks him if he's coming home for dinner that night about a half hour away in San Jose. And John says, no, I'm going to hang out in the hotel with my buddies. And his father keeps insisting that he comes home, and John keeps going, no, no, I, I want to stay here with my friends. His father says, I'm not in you anymore. I'm ordering you. And John goes, what's up with this? He goes, if you don't come home with me, your mother is not going to let me in the front door. <laughs> which I just thought was so funny that he that, um, needed a little protection for, uh, for not taking easy on John on the field. But uh, <laughs> the book is really filled with a lot of, um, I think, a lot of life lessons, and um, I'm really hoping that middle school and high school boys and girls and their parents will pick it up. Hey, Gary, was that Coach Paul Wigan by any chance? It was. That's right. Yeah,
4: that I have happen. his name in the um, book.
8: I just couldn't think of it right away, but that's who it was, yeah.
4: Well, you know, we just witnessed the Hall of Fame induction, and you just witnessed it as well. Um, you saw how much of a role the father of Terrell Davis played in his career, even though he passed away when Terrell was 12. He also was a tough guy to please. Um, you really get a feeling of how strong the bonds are. And I'm thinking also Brett Favre a year ago and how much he wanted mm-hmm. to win the affection and attention of his memory of his dad, Irv. But it was, was difficult to please. But you really get the feeling of how strong that father-son bond
8: is in some of these guys, don't you? Oh, without question, um, whether the fathers actually coached them or would just you know, observe the games uh, when they were kids or if they were easy on them or really tough on them. like I, I have one of the chapters on Derek Carr and, and his dad, Roger, not to be confused with Roger Carr who played for the Baltimore Colts, but um, his dad was just so positive regardless of what happened in the games. That um, it really drew a you know strong contrast to, to, like the Phil Simms story that I mentioned. That his father, you know, no matter what Phil did, and Phil was a really good baseball player too. He hit three home runs. Come home from a baseball game, his dad said, "How'd you do?" And he goes, "Well, I hit three out of the, over the fence." And his father goes, "Well, were they, were they real shots or kind of pop ups?" You know, <laughs> and Phil felt he could do nothing right, and yeah. Derek was, was just the opposite. That even if he played a poor game, his father found. You know the good things that he did in the game, and, and it was just really positive. And um, I, I found that was like a, a theme throughout the book that all these guys were just looking for the approval of their fathers. And um, and you know, like you mentioned, Clark, you heard a lot of that from from TD the other night. Right. Um, that it, it is really a, I think it is a very strong motivating force for a lot of these guys just to you know make their fathers proud.
5: Gary, we've got uh, two Hall of Fame committee meetings coming up into this month, and as a New York voter, you have a vested interest in both of them. So, who's more deserving, George Young as a contributor, or Joe Klecko as a senior?
8: Wow, um, I'd say this is a good year to put them both in because <laughs> uh, you know I, I felt that yeah, I felt that George should have got in when he was a modern era candidate years ago, and that was before I was on the you know on the larger committee. So I didn't have, obviously then I didn't have a vote back then. but I, I really felt that George Young uh, should have been the first one in on the contributor committee, and I've mentioned this to you before. Uh, I almost think that this this category could have been named after George. And I, I'm a little provincial and a little prejudiced when it comes to this because I was in New York at the time before I moved to Dallas, and I knew what kind of state the Giants franchise was in and what a mess he took over. Uh, with owners who didn't even speak to each other in Wellington and Tim Mara. They would talk to each other through George, and they hadn't been in the playoffs uh, since 1963 when he got here in 1979. And uh, by 86, they won a Super Bowl, then they won another. And then after he left the Giants, I thought he was a really key contributor uh, as Paul Tagliabue's right-hand man, the football guy in that NFL office. So I really feel George should get in. Uh, Klecko, I'm not sure how he fell through the cracks. All those years, for the 20 years he was eligible as a modern candidate, era candidate, other than, you know, the furthest the Jets ever got in the playoffs was the championship game in 1982 in the strike year, which they lost. He played on some real lousy teams, and uh, his best sack year was in 1981 when he had 20 and a half, but that was a year before sacks became an official statistic. And then he he had only 24 in his career because he he wound up moving inside the defensive tackle and nose tackle, which, as we all know, you don't get as many sacks in that position. So almost half the sacks that he had in his career don't even count in the stats. So when people look at that, they go, oh, you know, he played 11 years, only had 24 sacks. It would look a lot better if he had 44. He made the Pro Bowl at three positions. He was an All-Pro at two positions. I, I just think he was one of the better defensive linemen of this era, and I would love to see him get in. He's an immensely, immensely popular former Jet. And I've got, I have got—I can't tell you how many tweets and emails I've gotten from Jet fans, you know, hoping that this is the year for Klecko.
4: Gary, got a run here, but I want to tell you, thanks so much for joining us. Great to see you last week. Best of luck with the book. Thanks, Gary.
8: Okay, guys.
5: Thanks a lot. Thanks, Gary.
4: You got it. That was Hall of Fame voter Gary Myers of the New York Daily News, and he has a new book that will be in the stores this month called My First Coach, Inspiring Stories of NFL Quarterbacks, and their dads. Do him a favor and do us a favor. Give it a
9: read. This is Carson Palmer, and you're listening to the
4: Talk of Fame Network. Carson Palmer's not in that book, but give it a read anyway. You won't be disappointed. Hey, of course, we're never disappointed when our Rick Oslin gives his State Your Case a read, and State Your Case is brought to you by Progressive, where customers that switch to Progressive can save as much as $600. So log on to Progressive.com today and find out if you can save hundreds on car insurance. That's Progressive, and this, well, this is State Your Case. And Goose... Take it away.
5: Zach Thomas was a football player in the best Texas definition of the term. He was a three year starter at linebacker for Texas Tech in a league that loved to run the football, the Southwest Conference. A run stuffer extraordinaire, Thomas was named the Conference Defensive Player of the Year in 1995 and was a finalist for the Butkus Award given annually to college football's top linebacker. But when NFL teams started drafting players in April of 1996, they found 17 linebackers they considered better pro prospects than Thomas. At 5'11", 236, with 4'8'' speed and short arms, he did not fit the prototype for what succeeds on Sundays at the position. Too short, too slow. So Thomas slid in the 1996 draft and slid and slid before Miami finally rescued him in the fifth round. In hindsight, Zach Thomas should have been a first-round pick, a high first-rounder, because that's where the majority of the Pro Football Hall of Famers are usually found. And make no mistake about it, Thomas has a Hall of Fame resume. Thomas has been eligible for the Hall since 2014, and his name has been on the preliminary list of candidates for the last four years, but he's still waiting for his first trip to the semifinals. It will come. Thomas played 13 seasons and went to the Pro Bowl in more than half of them. He was named one of six linebackers to the NFL's 2000 All-Decade team. He opened his career with 11 consecutive 100 tackle seasons and owned seven of the top 10 single-season tackle marks in franchise history, including a career-best 195 in 2002. Thomas came up with 24 career takeaways, including 17 interceptions, and returned four of them for touchdowns. Only three linebackers in NFL history scored more touchdowns with interceptions than Thomas. Hall of Famers Bobby Bell and Derek Brooks with six base and Jack Pardee with five. His 1,960 career tackles are sixth most in NFL history. And his 163 career starts are third most in Miami history behind only Dan Marino and Bob Kuchenberg. Not bad for a guy considered too short, too slow, and not athletic enough to survive in the NFL. The NFL whiffed on Thomas in the 1996 draft. The Pro Football Hall of Fame should not repeat that mistake
4: about George huh? Does he belong in the hall, Goose? George yes, sir. Yeah, I know you feel that way. Well, there are plenty of people, including you, who believe George Koontz should be in the hall. And guess what? We're going to find out about George Coons because he's coming up. Yeah, he's coming up right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
6: This is Robert Kraft, and you're
4: listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Now, the reminder that the Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by Geico Insurance, where 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to geico.com.
6: Hey, this is Matt Ryan, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: Start your own color party with colors like champagne and Jubilee. Ask Sherwin-Williams and save 35% on paints and stains during the Love for Color sale, August 11th through the 14th. Your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams paint store is right around the corner. Find it at sherwinwilliams.com slash save. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.
2: Hey, it's Jim. I can't take your call right now. I'm digging for oil in my basement to help pay for my family's mobile bill. A little crazy, you say? (laughs) You try getting a data plan that has enough gigs for my family. And I thought braces were expensive. We definitely need a switch.
10: Stuck in a dysfunctional family plan? Switch to Boost Best Family Plan right now and get four lines for just $25 per line, each with unlimited gigs. With MetroPCS, you only get two gigs per line for the same price. Plus, switch today and get up to four free phones, all on the fast and reliable Sprint Nationwide Network. Boost makes it easy to switch. Switching makes it easy to save.
11: Offer ends nine ten seventeen. Requires one line to port in. Lines include unlimited data, talk, and text. Video streams optimized at up to four eighty p plus resolution. Music up to five hundred kilobits per second, and cloud gaming up to two megabits per second. Data deprioritization applies during congestion. Comparison based on Metro PCS's two gigabyte promo plan as of four twenty five seventeen. For additional details, visit their website. Free phones while supplies last. Requires port in and activation on one hundred plan. Coverage and offers not available everywhere. Restrictions apply.
12: There's- where I'm going and good friends who welcome me home so get a full tank of freedom drive the American
0: road and with a full tank of freedom find your
9: own highway will take you wherever you go
10: Marathon fueling the American spirit
12: Okay, keep your eyes closed. Okay. I want to show you my first ever painting. Ooh, all right. Okay. Open your eyes. Oh, that's a lot of colors mm-hmm.
10: <laughs> and shapes. So be honest. What do you think? Well, uh, I like how if you switch to GEICO, you could save hundreds of dollars on car insurance. Oh, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Here, why don't I hold your paintbrush while you call them?
13: GEICO, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer.
14: Hi, Tom Bodette. Apparently, the hip thing for businesses to do these days is target millennials. So it may sound sus coming from this baby boomer, but Motel 6 is a V-great place for your squad to stay woke or asleep. The updated rooms are hashtag blessed with contemporary floors, bedding, and flat-screen TVs that are totally on fleek. Plus, their prices are always low AF. I'm Tom Bodette, and we'll keep it lit for you. Book online at motel6.com.
7: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges, Rick Gosselin, and Clark Judge.
4: Just a reminder, Talk of Fame Network's brought to you by GEICO, where just 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to
6: geico.com. And Ron, when should you have gone?
1: 15 minutes ago, my
6: friend.
4: 15 minutes ago. Listen to Ron Borges. Save yourself some money. Our next guest, George Koontz, was one of the great offensive tackles in NFL history, going to eight Pro Bowls in the 1970s, when the Pro Bowl actually meant something to players. George was the second overall pick of the 1969 NFL Draft by the Atlanta Falcons, and as a rookie, he became both a walk-in starter and Pro Bowlers. Only two right tackles in NFL history went to more Pro Bowls than the eight George did. That would be Forrest Gregg and Roosevelt Brown, both of course are in the Hall of Fame. But George Koontz has never had his career discussed as either a semifinalist or finalist by the Hall of Fame Selection Committee, hard to believe. So we're here to talk about it today. George, thanks for joining us.
9: Oh, my pleasure. Good to be with you guys.
5: Hey, George, you've been eligible for the Hall now for 32 years, and despite those eight Pro Bowls, never been discussed as a candidate. Yet there have been lesser tackles that have been uh, enshrined. So my favorite question to Hall of Fame-worthy candidates, do you at all understand the selection process?
9: (laughs) You know, I know that there's an eight-person senior committee, which... At uh, 32 years out, I'd probably fall under. And they submit one or two folks for suggestions to the entire group every year. Well, some one, some two, depending on the year. And then it requires, I think it's an 80% vote, but I'm not too sure if it's both the senior committee or the entire committee uh, to to have that consideration. I know they also take input from players uh, from their era, and I don't know, uh, other than that, I'm not too sure of the process.
1: Neither are we, and we're on it. That's <laughs> right. It baffles us, George. Uh, the the Hall of Fame selection committee loves you know stats, and they sure love championships. Sixty eight percent of all the players enshrined in Canton uh, won an NFL championship. Now, as an offensive lineman, uh, you have no stats that are, are sort of publicly known. Uh, and having spent uh, your career in in Atlanta and um, Baltimore in the '70s, you have no championship. Uh, so, how is an offensive lineman with your credentials to be judged? in your own opinion, uh, if you were sitting there in the room with us?
9: Well, I you know, I, I think what you really got to do as uh, is, is a, is a player and as a, is a voter is take collateral sources. I, I guess the term would be esoteric. There are a group of people, the guys that you played with in your era, that would know about you. I think championships really do help outstanding players who play for championship teams. But uh, when you get beyond that point, collateral sources are important. So the people through the NFL Players Association, the awards that they must promulgate, uh, other awards that come in that particular area that are voted on by coaches and players, those are the things that uh, if you don't know much about the individual, those collateral sources have to be the ones you go to or you're not going to find a
4: name. Well, George, you were uh, mentioning... How difficult the process is. And Rick asked you, do you understand it? And Ron says, we don't understand it. You know what? Ron is now scrambling to understand what esoteric means. He's yes, I am. He's <laughs> He's looking it up going, what the heck is he talking about? I, I'm sorry. I, I, I apologize. <laughs> you, you got to dumb it down for the sports writers, you know. <laughs> We're speaking with former tackle George Koontz on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffame.net. And, George, as I mentioned in your introduction, you were the second overall pick of the 69 NFL Draft by the Falcons, and only four tackles in NFL history have been drafted higher. But you went to an expansion team coming off a 2-12 and season, and really it was still trying to figure out how to win. Um, so was being the second overall pick of an NFL Draft a blessing, or was it a curse?
9: Well, for me, and I can speak to my situation, it was a blessing. I went to Atlanta, which is a wonderful town. You know, it was a place that... It was a hotbed of football. They were getting an NFL team. Uh, they wanted to do. They wanted to see it be successful. The fans were tremendous. Uh, so from that standpoint, it was a blessing. But I, you, you just can't look at the year you went there. You've got to take a look at the years that occur after you're there. You know, Joe Green was drafted fourth in our draft, went to Pittsburgh. They had a tough year the first year. He and Terry Handratty were drafted there by the Steelers. But when they added Bradshaw, in those next few years, you could see the momentum building for the Steelers to get to those championship seasons. So, you know, that's what you've really got to take a look at. It's not You can't look at one year by itself. You've got to take a look at the draft over five or six years to see how a team has progressed. And when you see that amount of information, you know exactly what the front office is doing and what they're trying to produce.
5: George, you were traded to the Colts in 75 for the first overall pick of the draft, which the Falcons used on Steve Bartkowski the Colts were 2 and 12 without you in 74 but 10 and 4 with you in 1975 and in fact Baltimore won 3 consecutive AFC East titles with you in the block in front so how much fun was it playing with Burt Jones
9: <laughs> Burt uh, was not only an outstanding person outstanding athlete don't forget uh Burt's father is Dub Jones Dubs 92 and he was a receiver for the Cleveland Browns when Otto Graham was there so Burt had a great football knowledge in addition to that, don't forget, his younger brother Tom was a quarterback for Arkansas. A couple of years after, uh, I think uh, when when Bert was in the pros, so he came from a football background. He was uh, his leadership style uh, was uh, was straightforward. He was in your face, and I, and that's something that uh, that I think that a quarterback needs to be. But the other part of Bert that was really really interesting is that he listened to his players. He listened to the guys up front. I, told him on a couple of occasions when I had a read, and he used that information profitably. Now, the other part of the whole thing, in addition to Bert and what he could do in a field, were two other individuals that uh, were very personal to me. One was Ted Marchabroda, and I think Ted uh, came over from the Washington Redskins with a great offensive knowledge. It really helped Bert, and, and Ted was a pragmatist. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew the weaknesses that he could spot him on defense. The other guy that I think is a saint, uh, is Whitey Duvall, who was uh, my offensive line coach, a wonderful person, a great and outstanding coach who knew how to hit each individual that he coached personally to make them better. So you throw that together with Burt, and uh, all of a sudden you've got something you can be pretty proud of. Hey, George, you don't have to
4: tell us about Dub. We had Bert and Dub on the same program about a year and a half ago, and they were tremendous. <laughs> oh, they were great. great.
1: You know, Dub was great. You know, he's, 92.
9: he's 92. I know. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah he, we got he's... him at the lumberyard. He was working. <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing. It was great. He was at the lumberyard. <laughs> yeah,
9: well, you know, bert will do that to you. He'll keep you working.
1: <laughs> there you go. Uh, now, George, you didn't win a playoff game in Baltimore, but what people probably don't realize is that the first two years uh, – when you lost, you lost to the Steelers, who had arguably one of the, the greatest defense ever assembled at 75-76 uh, seasons. How challenging was it uh, blocking the steel curtain, and how do you go into a game against them convincing yourself, yeah, we can beat these guys?
9: Yeah, well, you know, I think what you really do is, uh, is an individual. Don't forget, not only did they have the front four, they had Russell, uh, Jack Ham, and Lambert. So, you know, you look at those guys, that front seven was awesome. But you, you break it down into your quadrant, and that is, I'm right tackle, my guys are Russell, Elsie Greenwood, and Joe Green. So the, the problem, what made it difficult for my side, was the fact that Joe Green was one of the few defensive tackles in the league that could cover a gap and a half. That means to say that you know, not only could he take the gap on his outside, but he could go halfway over to where Greenwood was at defensive end and cover it because he was that quick. That really freed up the end. So you have to concentrate on cutting your splits down so that Joe would be relegated to a specifically smaller area, and then watching what Greenwood did to see if you could actually get any tells from him. Tell means how he's lining up specifically to tell you what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. So there was a very personal battle uh, as to what occurred, and you tried to focus on those three guys uh, in front of you, because you couldn't do anything about the backside anyway. That was somebody else's responsibility. So in dealing with the steel curtain, my goal was to try to dominate on a, on a percentage basis more often than not. Three guys.
4: Hey George, remember that '76 game with the Steelers when the plane crashed in the upper deck after the oh, game? Oh yeah, no, you <laughs> <laughs> Memorial
9: Stadium. No kidding. You know that's. That, you know what? And I hate to say it, but you know that was the highlight of the game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yeah, yeah. You guys got yeah. turns pretty
4: well in that game. Um, we did. Most people, of course, you don't realize that back in your era, the best offensive tackles played the right side, not the left side, because the best defensive ends played there. You had to block people like uh, Deacon, Carl Eller, too tall, Bubba Smith, L.C. Greenwood, going on Jack Youngbug. Um, so who was your greatest challenge? I mean, which player did you find the most difficult to block?
9: Well, I'll tell you, and, and this has to do with what we just talked about. It, you know, Deacon Jones is a fantastic athlete. Carl Eller was a phenomenal athlete. He was more of a basketball player. Ah, uh, Tall and Bubba and Elsie and Jack Youngblood—you know—they were also outstanding in their own individual ways. But what made Youngblood and Jones unique is that gap and a half that Merlin Olson could cover. So you had to take a look at the tandem that played on that side. So that allowed Deacon to come up field with that head slap from a left hand, and that allowed uh, Merlin Olson to sort of plug in there and make sure that nothing came to his outside that Deacon may not cover because he's rushing upfield. Same thing with Jack, Jack Youngblood. You know, Jack had he was a great athlete, but it, that defensive lineman on the inside freed him up to come outside. Now, Bubba didn't really have that too much, nor the too tall because Jack, or Bob Lilly played on the other side. And L.C. had Joe Green. So you take a look at that group, and, you know, if I were to pick two that were outstanding athletes, three, actually, would be Jones, Eller, and Youngblood. But when you get right down to it, what made them good is the fact that they had that coverage on the inside.
5: George, you mentioned uh, Ted Marcher brought up, and he called you one of the greatest leader leaders he's ever coached. You were a captain at Notre Dame, captain with the Falcons, captain with the Colts, you were voted captain of the first AFC Pro Bowl team you were on. What makes a great leader on the football field?
9: Well, and, and I appreciate the, the compliment, the digging you did, believe me. But I think what makes it uh, – I don't think great leaders do a lot of talking. I think they show by example. You know, it, it's your demeanor. I think Marvin Powell said at one time, and I think he paid me a, one of the nicest compliments I've been paid, and that he, he said that I had a quiet aggressiveness. And that is that I knew the situation, I knew how to get it done, and I aggressively went to that task. Uh, and, I, and I appreciated my, and I think Marvin's a great player. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, I appreciated his, his observation. But I think what really makes a leader is you've got to have a willingness to to do more than you're asked to do. And if you can get to that level and try to do a little bit more, you may not always achieve it, but you're always trying and your teammates see that and they react positively to it. So as far as leadership goes, never been demonstrative in terms of trying to say big things, but they know that I'm giving an effort and if they'd like to join in, that'd be great.
1: <laughs> you mentioned something a minute ago. I I just have to ask you about it. You talked about Deacon Jones and the head slap, uh, and everyone has heard about that, of course, and we've seen video of it. But you got up close and personal with it. Uh, what is, what did that feel like when Deacon Jones well, it, slapped your head?
9: <laughs> it was it was disorienting until you sharpened your face mask. And that, <laughs> so if if, if uh, you know the the bottom line is you knew it was coming, so the first thing you had to do, uh, if you're an offensive lineman, you listen to the cadence the quarterback gives you. And it's pretty rhythmic, and you know when that last hut is coming. So depending if it's one, two, and three, you get the sequence, and you actually, you're a half a beat ahead of that hut. And when that happens, it takes a head slap out of play because you're too far back for him to reach you. Now, if a guy has a 40-inch sleeve length, he's going to have a better chance to reach out and catch you and disorient you for that split second. But you've got to listen to the cadence. Once you get the cadence down for a specific quarterback, you know when it's coming. You don't move on the sound. You move on the anticipation. And that's what makes you be able to get back there quicker.
4: George Coates, thanks for the time. Best of luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy. And thanks so much for introducing Ron to the word esoteric.
1: <laughs> I learn a word a day. That's exciting, actually.
4: Well, I appreciate the
9: interview, and I wish
4: you guys all the best. Thank you. Thanks, George. George. That was former offensive tackle George Koontz of the Atlanta Falcons and the Baltimore Colts. And I'll tell you what, guys, I can never hear enough Burt Jones stories. I I covered Burt at the end of his career in Baltimore, and I know we talked about Terrell Davis earlier, but had Burt Jones' career not been cut short by injuries, guarantee he'd be in the Hall of Fame too. So thank you, George Koontz. Up next, it's the 2-Minute Drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
0: Start your own color party with colors like champagne and Jubilee. Ask Sherwin-Williams and save 35% on paints and stains during the Love for Color sale, August 11th through the 14th. Your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams paint store is right around the corner. Find it at sherwinwilliams.com slash save. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.
7: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges, Rick Goslin, and Clark Judge.
6: When you start telling me it doesn't matter,
7: then we're tired. Get out.
4: Hey, Rick Goslin. Yes, sir. i got a question for you that matters. What does it mean when Geico says just 15 minutes can save you
5: 15% or more on car insurance? It means this show can't end soon enough so I can get on the horn to Geico. A <laughs> smart, man.
4: He's right. Listen to Rick Gosselin. He's a Hall of Famer. For more details, go to Geico.com or Rick Gosselin, and you should have gone 15 minutes ago. That's the hey, that's the signal that Ron, our Ron Borges, is off the first tee at the PGA and on to our two-minute drill brought to you by Burger King Breakfast. So, Ron, take it away.
6: Hey, boys, the NFL says it is banning celebration involving imagine- imaginary weaponry. How about banning players carrying real weaponry?
5: There you go. Picking on Spartan Plexigoburris once again.
6: <laughs> Forget it. There'd be nobody left to play. Are the Dolphins better off with Jake Cutler or Colin Kaepernick?
5: Dan Marino.
6: Cutler. At least he stands for something. Mediocrity. Clark's friend Todd Brady says concussions are nobody's business but his. What will he be saying in 20 years?
5: Where did I leave my
6: gold jacket? Um, what was the question again? Speaking of Tom Terrific, he says his diet and workouts insulate him from concussions. His wife says he gets knocked loopy. Who's the truth teller in the bunch and bunch?
5: Well, has Giselle destroyed her cell phone yet?
4: Tom Terrific, and you know it, Ronnie. But you can't handle the truth.
6: Colin Kaepernick is 39th in merchandise sales. Free colon or 99.95 colon?
5: He'd be a lot higher if Nike could figure out his next team for the purpose of jersey sales.
6: Neither. Mr. Goodell says football players live longer. True, false, or CTE?
5: Live longer than who? Skydivers, sword swallowers, tightrope walkers? (laughs)
6: Live longer than what? Mayflies? True. The defending Super Bowl champions have five new starters that's lit. Free on defense. Is that good, bad, or Belichick?
5: As long as the quarterback doesn't change, he can have 21 other interchangeable parts.
6: Wait, look at my notes, Goose. Uh, Yeah, as long as Brady's your quarterback, it doesn't matter who plays defense. Charging defenseman Melvin Ingram says the 30,000-seat sub-up center has, quote, a warm feeling, unquote. What will visiting team accountants say?
5: Bend it like Beckham.
6: What they'll say is, looking at this crowd, I can't
4: tell who the home team is. That is the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. Ron isn't, and he's at the PGA. In our second hour, we're going to hear from HBCU Hall of Famers James Harris and Archell. They're coming up after halftime. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
2: Hey, it's Jim. I can't take your call right now. I'm digging for oil in my basement to help pay for my family's mobile bill. A little crazy, you say? (laughs) You try getting a data plan that has enough gigs for my family, and I thought braces were expensive. We definitely need a switch.
10: Stuck in a dysfunctional family plan? Switch to Boost Best Family Plan right now and get four lines for just $25 per line, each with unlimited gigs. With MetroPCS, you only get two gigs per line for the same price. Plus, switch today and get up to four free phones, all on the fast and reliable Sprint Nationwide Network. Boost makes it easy to switch. Switching makes it easy to save.
11: Offer ends nine ten seventeen. Requires one line to port in. Lines include unlimited data, talk, and text. Video streams optimized at up to 480p plus resolution. Music up to 500 kilobits per second and cloud gaming up to 2 megabits per second. Data deprioritization applies during congestion. Comparison based on MetroPCS's 2 gigabyte promo plan as of four twenty five seventeen. For additional details, visit their website. Free phones while supplies last. Requires port in and activation on $100 plan. Coverage and offers not available everywhere. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Geico's Motorcycle Meanderings.
3: Oh, man, this is great. I sure saved a lot of money by switching to Geico. I scored some big savings and now I can use their mobile app 24-7 for all sorts of stuff. Life just makes sense now. You know what doesn't make sense? If a car is called a horseless carriage, why isn't a motorcycle called a horseless horse? Hmm. Maybe it would just be adding insult to injury for the out-of-work horses.
14: Geico Motorcycle. Savings that make sense. Hi, Tom Bodette trying to align my chakras around this hot yoga thing. Yep, they finally found a way to make working out even more uncomfortable. Well, at least with Motel 6, you've got one less thing to sweat. They've got clean, comfortable, and now completely updated rooms at a great low price. So the only thing you're stretching is your dollar. Sounds like my kind of place to namaste. I'm Tom Bodette, and we'll leave the light and the AC on for you. Book online at motel6.com.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. this thing on? Because it's getting ready to be on. With Ron Borges.
3: I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh.
0: Rick Oslin. No, 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 no. There's two O's in goose. And Clark Judge.
14: Hold the
8: robo! Hold the robo! the
4: To a reminder, the Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by GEICO, where just 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to GEICO.com. And you probably should have gone 15 minutes ago.
14: Hey! No more
15: please I'm moving on to smoke meats, fellas. Peace out. I'm out of here. Later. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Thought it was over, huh? Nah, no, I'll be back, but not on that
4: field. <laughs> Peace out! Well, there's a the guy who knew how to hold a rope. That was defensive tackle Vince Wilfork announcing his retirement this week in a video commercial for, what else? Yeah, Grilling ribs. Gotta love that. But Ronnie, uh, let me ask you this. Do You have to love Vince Wilfork as a Hall of Fame candidate. I mean, five Pro Bowls, four All-Pros. He was on the past 50th anniversary team. I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking I'd throw that thing out there before everyone else does. What do you think?
6: Well, uh, you know, first off, that was the first ballot Hall of Fame retirement announcement, I'll tell you that much. He get the ribs and everything, that was the best. But, uh, look, he, he lasted 13 years at, at one of the toughest positions in football, uh, as you point out, four-time All-Pro and, uh, and more than likely an All-Decade player. So, to me, he most certainly has earned the right to be debated, that's for sure. How about you, Gus?
5: Uh, Richard Seymour is going to be a tough sell for Ron because of his scarcity of stats, and I think Wolfork will be an even tougher sell for the same reason. It's 16 sacks and 13 seasons, and this committee loves sacks. So if I'm Ron, I focus on Seymour, and if and when he gets in, move on to Wilfork. There
4: you go. Well, i tell you, another thing you got to love is the Black College Football Hall of Fame. Having a spot in Canton uh, where we were last week. It's on the first floor. But what you don't have to love, Goose, is, is the real estate. Now, the real estate the HBCU has. I think Ron's hotel room in Charlotte's bigger, huh?
5: Yeah, it's a start, though. As the hall continues to expand, the HBCU section will continue to expand this is such a rich history. The HBCU has produced 31 Pro Football Hall of Famers, eight members of the NFL's 75th anniversary team, Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, Deacon Jones, Bob Hayes. This is a history that should not be soon forgotten.
4: Okay, well, we're going to visit with two of the guys featured that exhibit. That's former quarterback James Harris and offensive tackle Art Shell in this hour, and we get their thoughts on the HBCU. That plus Dr. Data on why the Cowboys won't, you hear me, won't win the Super Bowl. She may be hearing from Jerry again. That's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
13: Hey, how you guys doing? This is Steve Smith-Singer, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Progressive presents Mind Flowness with Flow.
16: You are in the middle of the ocean on a raft, finding coverage options that fit your budget as you listen to the ebb and flow of the tide. Your budget, the ebb. Our coverage, the flow. Why tetherball isn't considered a real sport? unknown
13: be at one with your budget with the name your price tool visit progressive.com today progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law
7: this is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. What the hell are we waiting on? Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges. Do you want it or not? Rick Goslin.
14: Do you understand there's a price to pay?
7: And Clark Judge.
14: Can we have fun? You're damn right. I demand that we have fun.
8: Hey,
6: Rick Goslin. Yes, sir. you know what it means when GEICO
4: says there is a price to pay that just 15 minutes can save you 15% or more in car insurance?
5: I should get to a phone where Ron Borges is. He's on the phone right now. Where is he?
4: <laughs> He's said, Charlotte. You are correct, Dr. Dad, as usual. For more details, listen to Dr. Dad or go to geico.com. And you should have gone 15 minutes ago. Well, as you know, we run polls each week on our website, and that website would be talkoffamenetwork.com. And last week, we ran one on which candidate should be the choice as the next contributor to reach the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2018. And the winner... The winner was Denver owner Pat Bolin, and in a landslide, I guess, which is no surprise, or should come as no surprise to anyone, he's meddled as a finalist before, though never gaining enough votes, and, Goose, there's been some serious campaigning on his behalf by Denver fans, media, and a certain GM named, or whose initials are, uh,
5: John Elway. John Elway, front of the show yeah you know, Clark, I, I thought it would be more competitive between Bolin and Robert Kraft. You know, those appear to be the next two owners in the queue, but this poll was all about Boland. You know, Not a whole lot of heed was paid for Kraft in those five Lombardi trophies.
4: How about Bethard? I thought he'd be more visible in that, too.
5: Yeah. Redskins fan following usually turns out better. Yeah, it does. I was surprised. Um, yeah.
4: Anyway, you you and I are on that contributor committee, and I'm going into Canton again in three weeks to vote. We have five of us there. and I'll be one of the five. Um, my question to you, Goose, is how do we bring out an owner? And let's say it's Pat Bolin or let's say it's Robert Kraft, an owner, just an owner, for the third straight year. How can we do that? Because we had Eddie DeBartolo two years ago, Jerry Jones this year. How can we do that when it's supposed to be a contributor category, not an owner category?
5: Well, I'm not sure you do bring out an owner a third consecutive year. You know, we haven't brought out a GM since the first year of the committee. And the guy that finds the players is just as valuable a commodity in football, maybe even more than the guy that pays the players. And you know, there's only one contributor nominee this year, and it seems to me it's time for another GM.
4: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because my feeling, and, and again, it's, it's just a feeling is that we do have somebody who's going to find the players as one of the guys this year, GM or personnel guy, a Bobby Beathard, a Gil Brandt, Bucko, Kilroy, George Young, one of those guys, you agree?
5: Yeah, Bethard, Brandt, and Young all found players, but Kilroy is the most unique name on the ballot because he's the only one of the four who also has been a player, in fact, an all-decade selection from the 1940s. Again, I think he's the most intriguing name this year's ballot.
4: Yeah, I agree with you, Goose. But the thing I don't like here is with the Hall of Fame, they separate player and then yeah. uh, coach and then owner. So in other words, you had a guy like Dick LeBeau who was a great player and a great defensive coach. He said you have to judge him as a player or you have to judge him as a defensive coach.
5: Why can't you judge the career in total? I don't know, especially in this particular category. What are you contributing? He contributed on the field and off. It, yeah. it makes no sense.
4: Yeah, well, well, it's an interesting debate, and it's one, I guess, our readers settle pretty easily. They love Pat yeah. Boland. Mm-hmm. I don't know he's coming out. Uh, but one that hasn't been settled, Goose, Going to modern times, fast forward a little bit, is the never-ending Colin Kaepernick story. Now, I think this guy should play bump and run with the NFL or um, and just go to the CFL. It just seems it makes no difference what he says or does. The NFL just doesn't seem to be interested in him. The CFL, however, I think would be the perfect place for him to go and reinvent himself. How about you? Yeah,
5: this is a guy who needs to rebuild his stock, and that's not going to happen sitting at home. Joe Theismann, Warren Moon, Doug Flutie and Jeff Garcia all benefited from trips up north to Canada before hitting it big in the NFL. I think if Callan Kaepernick is serious about playing quarterback again, go to Canada and start throwing passes.
4: Okay, Dr. Data, how about some honesty here? How much of this do you think is the fact that he's well, he, the fact that he's unsigned is a product of his political stance? And, and, and how much is a product that he's 2-16 his last 18 games? And the fact that uh, you have to tailor your offense to him.
5: I think he's not on a roster for the same reason Tim Tebow is no longer playing football. You fear his legs more than you do his arm. You know, quarterbacks always have and always win in this league with their arms. Last year, Kaepernick completed fewer than 60% of his passes. averaged fewer than seven yards per completion. He averaged more yards per rush than he did per pass. And that's an issue in this league.
4: And it's also the circus, that, as with Tebow. I yeah. mean, that caused people to say, no, they're not going to touch him. The same thing here now. It's become a circus with him.
5: Yeah. you know, I, Clark, I, I do think he'll wind up playing at some point this year. But I think he'll be signed by a team that's thrust into an emergency situation because of an injury. Now, that may be August. It may be October. It may be right. December. I think at some point he'll have a uniform on.
11: Okay,
4: Goose, we have another guy who was signed this week. And that's my favorite guy, the Jeff George play-alike, Mr. Jay Cutler. Um, the Dolphins didn't sign Kaepernick when Ryan Tannehill was hurt. We know that. But they signed this guy, and I understand. He had success with Adam Gase, who's the head coach. His one year in Chicago. So now, what happens between those guys here?
5: Well, Cutler steps in, puts up decent numbers, and the Dolphins fail to a charge at the Patriots in the East. He's a 500 quarterback, and without Tannehill, this is a 500 team.
4: Okay, Gooseman, is there any chance in your mind that Dallas might do the same thing with Tony Romo if Dak Prescott somehow went down this summer.
5: Oh, I think without question, Jerry picks up the phone. Um, Prescott is younger, healthier. Uh, I would expect him to get the season, but I think this is the only team that Romo would consider coming back and playing for. He certainly knows the offense.
4: Okay, uh, and what does this mean for Ryan Tannehill? I mean, is his career effectively over in Miami? Does it depend on what happens to Cutler? What happens to Ryan Tannehill?
5: I think uh, Cutler's a mere patch. You know, Tannehill's only 28, Let's see how his rehab goes. He did engineer a 10-win wild-card playoff season in Miami a year ago. I don't think he gave give up on all that yet.
4: What do you think happens to the Dolphins? Are, are they a team that can, you know, they were playoff-bound last year. Do you think they're a team that can get to the playoffs with Jay Cutler? Because he's going to be the guy who's playing.
5: No, I don't. I, I think this, this team is going to take a step backward now with uh, with Cutler taking the snaps. You know, Cutler, he's he's... I don't think he's a leader. Tannehill is. Great talent, but there's something. Everywhere he's been, there's been something missing. Agree. Well, there's a signal
4: that somewhere, someplace, Jerry Jones, yep, he's raising a glass to our Dr. Data, a.k.a. Rick Gosselin, a.k.a. Jerry Jones' campaign director. Dr. Data is brought to you by Motel 6. Look online at motel6.com, and the doc will leave the light on for you. Let's hear it, Doc.
5: The Super Bowl hopes of the Dallas Cowboys suffered a huge blow last weekend, and it came on a night of celebration. The Hall of Fame game is the annual kickoff to another NFL season. Some teams don't mind playing in Canton because it gives them an extra preseason game, five total, to better evaluate their young players. Dallas is one of those teams. The Cowboys again opened a preseason last Thursday night in Canton. Toppling the Arizona Cardinals 20-18, it was a record sixth appearance in the Hall of Fame game for Dallas and the third time the Cowboys have traveled to Canton to play in the last seven years. The NFL has staged the Hall of Fame annually since 1962, but the winner of that game has never, repeat never, gone on to win an NFL championship or Super Bowl. That's 52 years and counting now. In fact, only two teams that won the Hall of Fame game have even reached the Super Bowl, the Bengals 1988 and the Rams 2001. The Cowboys lost the first three times they played in Canton, but now have a three-game winning streak in the Hall of Fame game. The Cowboys defeated the Bengals 16-7 in Canton in 2010, but went on to finish 6-10 that season. Dallas also toppled Miami 24-20 in 2012, but went on to finish that season 8-8. The Cowboys, the defending NFC East champion, having won 13 games a year ago, and have high hopes for the 2017 season. But Dallas will now have to overcome that preseason victory in Canton to give their newly minted Hall of Fame owner Jerry Jones his fourth Lombardi Trophy.
4: Well, Goose, you heard that phone ringing. We have a listener out there who wants to ask this question: Why
5: do you think this happens?
4: I mean. I could see it happening a majority of the time. Would you say 52 times? 52. 52 times. Well, that's a story in itself. So why do you think that happens?
5: Because it, especially in, in the last couple decades, you're not seeing the Dallas Cowboys on the field. The guys that played in that game <laughs> won't even be there in September. So this is this is not this is not Tom Brady taking snaps uh, in August or Tony Romo taking snaps in August. It's a meaningless game. But uh, it's kind of quirky that no team has ever uh, has ever gone on to win big after this game. Maybe well, five heard me say, games too many.
4: You heard me say earlier, Goose, I, I would can the game if I were the NFL. Would you? Yeah, Certainly I, those fifty two teams would. <laughs> I, I,
5: I, teams I would, win. but look at the money they've sunk into the stadium. They they've got to have a game to play and I think that will be uh that that'll be that'll carry the day. They're gonna have to keep a a, a game in that building just to justify the cost of fixing that renovating net stadium.
4: Okay, well if you remember Goose, a week ago we were talking about the legacy of the historically black colleges and universities. Well, as we saw, there's an exhibit of the HBCU at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And it includes two of our next guests. That'd be James Shaq Harris and Art Shell. And you're going to hear from each of them when we return right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
13: Progressive presents Mind Flowness with Flow.
16: You are in the middle of the ocean on a raft, finding coverage options that fit your budget. As you listen to the ebb and flow of the tide, your budget, the ebb our coverage the flow why tetherball isn't considered a real sport unknown be
13: at one with your budget with the name your price tool visit progressive.com today progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law
7: this is the talk of fame network on sb nation radio here are your hall of fame voters ron borges cannot play with him Rick Goslin Cannot win with them. And Clark Judge.
14: Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. I want winners.
4: Just a reminder, the Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by a winner. That would be GEICO, where just 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to geico.com. And you probably should have gone 15 minutes ago. Hey, our next guest, James Harris, holds a prominent place in NFL history. He became the first... African-American to open a season as a starting quarterback when, in 1969, he opened as a rookie with the Buffalo Bills. Now, James was an eighth-round draft pick out of Grambling, who also became the first black quarterback selected for a Pro Bowl, and opened the door for the Doug Williamses, Warren Moons, Randall Cunningham, Steve McNairs, Michael Vets, Cam Newtons, and Russell Wilsons at that position. Now, like James, Williams and McNair also played for historical black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, we call it. And James is with us today to talk about that talent pipeline to the NFL. James Harris, thanks for being here.
15: Thank you very much for having me, and special thanks for this topic you're speaking on.
5: Hey, James, would you have had the opportunity to play quarterback in the NFL had it not been for Eddie Robinson in the Grambling Tigers?
15: I don't think so, because uh, Coach Robinson had a plan. He was challenged by Howard Cosell. Uh, he's producing so many players, why he couldn't produce a quarterback. And although the NFL wasn't ready... Uh, when i graduated from high school he said in four years they would and he went on to go through the nfl bring back concepts and during the off season we would work on them and four years later uh, i had a lot of extensive information on the nfl and i thought i was prepared to compete so i don't think so i owe a lot to coach eddie robinson
1: when you arrived in in buffalo uh you know you knew how it was in the nfl uh, there was Sandy Stevens around, Eldridge Dickey, Marlon Briscoe. They were elite black college quarterbacks in the 60s, but when they got to the NFL, they got moved immediately to other positions. Uh, Marlon Briscoe has told me a story about through 14 touchdown passes as a rookie, and then that April got a call from his teammate saying, why aren't you at the quarterback meeting? He said, because nobody told me. So uh, <laughs> it was amazing. So how did an eighth-round pick such as yourself uh, emerge as a starter as an NFL rookie, and did you know what you were getting into or, or, or what the – Prejudice was at that time?
15: I had really researched. I was a fan of the game. So I'd researched the game. I'd even go to the library when I was a junior. I followed Marlon Briscoe, Eldridge Dickey, and Jimmy Ray uh, each week to see what happened. I thought Eldridge Dickey, one of the best I played, would make it. Uh, he switched into a position. So I understood you know, what the obstacles were. But I think one of the reasons I had success because I was really prepared. To to play by coach, both mentally and physically, and the one thing was uh, during that time is that you just couldn't miss. You know, you couldn't miss, and I probably threw the ball as well as I could at any at any time in my in my
4: career. Shaq, I just thought I'd mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Jimmy Ray. Any time we have a Michigan State player mentioned on the show, we have to pack Rick Goslin and Ice. He goes crazy. He loves those Spartans. Loves those Spartans, and he loves Jimmy Ray. <laughs> We're speaking with former quarterback James Harris on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at net. And James, um, the HBCU, as we know, was once such a great talent supplier of the NFL, uh, and it gave us players like Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, of course, Deacon Jones, Archel Willanier, Buck Buchanan. All of them are Hall of Famers, and, and they all came off HBCU campuses. But the HBCU hasn't produced a Hall of Famer since Michael Strahan in 93, 1993, and hasn't produced a first-round draft pick since Dominique Rogers cromartie in 2008. Does it sadden you to see the decline in the quality of a player or in the caliber of football there? Absolutely. Especially,
15: you know, playing during an era when we had the absolute best talent in the country to see where we are today. I also realized, opportunities that young players have today with the major universities. I understand,
11: you know, why they want that
15: experience. But I just feel there's too much separation between the talent that we're getting and I think some of the players who are not successful at Texas and Texas A and M and these different places should consider H B C U schools. I would like to I, I think we need more support in terms of people speaking on behalf of our universities, with our history. We produced a lot of outstanding graduates in the country, not only in football, we were very successful around the country. And I think uh, i like to see that part of it change back.
5: James, Grambling in particular developed into a direct pipeline to the NFL. Willie Brown, Willie Davis, Buck Buchanan, Charlie Joyner all became Hall of Famers off the Grambling campus. Sammy White, Doug Williams, Albert Lewis, Pro Bowlers. Is there still magic in the Grambling name?
15: I think it is, and I think it is because all those who had the experience of playing during that time or watching us play realized not only grammar, but all the black schools had a superior talent, had as good a talent as anybody in the country, and they've told our story, and they told it to their kids, and as you travel around now, your people still know the grammar story and a lot of other schools' stories. I think the biggest thing we have is that we can't get the financial – we haven't been able to get the financial support to match the tradition and accomplishment that we have uh, achieved.
1: You know, one thing I'm, I'm wondering, Shaq, is when, when you came to Buffalo, how much pressure were you feeling You know, outside of your own play? I mean, how much of a burden did you feel you were carrying for everybody else? That if you didn't do it, uh, then a lot of people were, were going to say, well, see – we, you know, none of these guys can do it. We, did you feel that when you got to Buffalo?
15: When I got to Buffalo, uh, I had put everything behind me. But before I left going to Buffalo, growing up in the segregated South, I understood that uh, about how America, there were no black quarterbacks, no black governors, no black corporate executives. So I didn't think I had very much of a, of a chance. And once I was drafted in Brown, didn't uh, – not to play. Coach Robin talked me into playing and with that and with that said some very powerful words to me. That if I if I went to the pro ball and didn't make it, don't come back and say the reason you didn't make it was the Belgian black. And if you go, don't expect it to be fair. You know before you leave you got to be better. And those words, profound words, kinda of prepared me when I got to Buffalo although I was 7th on the death chart. We realized, I may not give it one opportunity, but I was representing the opportunity of the other guys who may come after me. And, you know, I had to do everything I could to make sure the reason that I didn't get cut was because I wasn't steady. I wasn't prepared. And with that in mind, when I got there, I was nervous, but I wasn't scared. And I was got. Through the grace of God, I was able to play well that year and make it. The thing that some of the things that you had to play through was a lot of hate mail. You know, the fact that coming out of the South and I didn't have, uh, hadn't talked to a lot of white people during my experience, and now I had to step in the huddle and call the plays. That was as challenging as anything for me.
4: Uh, James, and we're speaking with James Harris, former quarterback on the Talk of Fame Network. James, one question I I want to ask you, just backtracking a little bit. You said you would like to see more support for the uh, HBCU and more financial support, uh, seeing players maybe go from a Texas where they may be not starting, or uh, USC, some of the major schools, and and maybe going back to the HBCU where they could sort of rekindle those uh, careers. And you'd like to see more support, more, more financial support. How do you propose that would happen, and do you think that's realistic in this day and age? I don't, you
15: know, I don't know if it's realistic. uh, How realistic it is? I know there are a lot of organizations that are, you know, donating money for for education and to help, you know, others. And certainly, these educates. I mean, these schools are providing some of our leaders of the future, and if some of the people who have foundations and chairs uh, uh, can uh, lend a helping hand to, to some of our schools, I think it would be very well appreciated. They adopt some of the schools, and it would be very well appreciated.
5: James, after your playing days were over, you enjoyed a, a pretty successful career in talent evaluation. You are a personnel director of the Ravens when they won that first Super Bowl. Your Vice President, President of the Jaguars, Senior Personal Executive of the Lions. So I, you obviously know what a player looks like. So I'm going to toss this one into your wheelhouse. Who's the most talented African-American quarterback you've ever seen? <laughs> yourself.
6: Aside from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from you. yeah something's yeah, wrong I with wouldn't,
15: <laughs> I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even say that. Let me put it to you this way. I think, I think Eldridge Dickey, who I played with in college, was the best quarterback I ever played with played against, I mean, in college. And I was certain that he would make it in the NFL. And I feel uh, I feel badly that he didn't get a chance to play because he was before his time. Doug Williams is the best college quarterback I've ever seen. He threw 38 touchdown passes for Coach Eddie Robinson's team who didn't believe in throwing the ball uh, and finished fourth in the Heisman during a time that it wasn't fashionable. Warren Moon was a great quarterback who should have been drafted in the NFL I had to go to Canada. You know, I think those are superior talents in terms of guys that I've seen play. And Marlon Briscoe wasn't a bad quarterback either.
4: James Harris, neither were you. You were terrific to watch and thanks so much for the time and thanks again for the education in the HBCU.
8: Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, James.
4: I was former quarterback. James Shaq Harrison, he's in the HBCU Hall of Fame in Canton, and it didn't take a, a genius to figure out where it's located it's on the first floor, or to find James Harris, you look in that exhibit, he's right there on the left side staring at you, a great picture of him from college.
5: Yeah, James Harris, Doug Williams, uh, those are the two guys that founded the right. hall, that established this hall, and it really does need a larger space, I mean there have been so many great players that have come out of that uh, the, that the historically black college and universities. We need to better present that product because that was such a a lifeline for the AFL and some of the NFL teams in the 70s. Just so many great players.
4: Yeah, including Charlie Joyner, who's I think was helmet or his uniforms there. I I love seeing that because, as Shaq said, the greatest slot receiver in NFL history.
5: Yeah, without question. And I'll tell you what, there are corners and wide receivers. You could pick about five all-pro teams with those players.
4: Okay, well, we're going to be talking to another member of the HBCU, and that would be former tackle Archell. He's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
2: Hey, it's Jim. I can't take your call right now. I'm digging for oil in my basement to help pay for my family's mobile bill. A little crazy, you say? <laughs> you try getting a data plan that has enough gigs for my family. And I thought braces were expensive. We definitely need a switch.
10: Stuck in a dysfunctional family plan? Switch to Boost Best Family Plan right now and get four lines for just $25 per line, each with unlimited gigs. With MetroPCS, you only get two gigs per line for the same price. Plus, switch today and get up to four free phones, all on the fast and reliable Sprint Nationwide Network. Boost makes it easy to switch. Switching makes it easy to save.
11: Offer ends nine ten seventeen. Requires one line to port in. Lines include unlimited data, talk, and text. Video streams optimized at up to 480p plus resolution. Music up to 500 kilobits per second and cloud gaming up to 2 megabits per second. Data deprioritization applies during congestion. Comparison based on Metro PCS's 2-gigabyte promo plan as of four twenty five seventeen. For additional details, visit their website. Free phones while supplies last. Requires port in and activation on $100 plan. Coverage and offers not available everywhere. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Geico's Motorcycle Neanderings.
3: Oh, man, this is great. I sure saved a lot of money by switching to Geico. I scored some big savings and now I can use their mobile app 24-7 for all sorts of stuff. Life just makes sense now. You know what doesn't make sense? If a car is called a horseless carriage, why isn't a motorcycle called a horseless horse? Hmm. Maybe it would just be adding insult to injury for the out-of-work horses.
14: Geico Motorcycle. Savings that make sense. Hi, Tom Bodette. According to the Dad Bod craze, the lumpy, less than chiseled look is now totally in. So you could say I'm in the best shape of my life. And so is Motel 6. They've updated their properties nationwide with contemporary everything, still for the same low price you've come to expect. So your wallet can feel a little pleasantly plump, too. I'm Tom Beaudet, and we'll leave the light on for you. Book online at MotelSix.com.
0: Start your own color party with colors like champagne and Jubilee. Ask Sherwin-Williams and save 35% on paints and stains during the Love for Color sale, August 11th through the 14th. Your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams paint store is right around the corner. Find it at sherwinwilliams.com save. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.
12: A good night's sleep starts with the right pillow. That's where MyPillow comes in, and now for a limited time, just go to MyPillow.com, click the Radio Listener Special tab, and use promo code SKY to get two premium king or queen pillows and two additional go-anywhere travel pillows, all for 50% off and free shipping. That's MyPillow.com, promo code SKY, or call 1-800-635-1825. 1-800-635-1825. This is
7: the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Here are your Hall of Fame voters, Ron Borges, Rick Goslin, and Clark Judge.
4: Just a reminder, Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by GEICO, where just 15 minutes can save you 50% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to geico.com. And you probably should have gone 15 minutes ago. Well, of the 310 inductees into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, 29 are from historically black colleges and universities, and one of the best is with us today. That's Archell. Archell not only is a Hall of Fame tackle, but he was the first African-American head coach in the NFL in 65 years when he took over the Oakland Raiders in 1989. A year later, of course, he was voted NFL Coach of the Year. Boy, Ron loves that music, and I bet Art does too. Art attended Maryland Eastern Shore, which, when he was there, it's called Maryland State and where he was a two-time All-American and three-time All-Central Intercollegiate Athletic Association selection. He's been with us before on this program, and we are delighted to have him back, as well as that Raider theme song. Hey, Art, thanks for joining us. It's
17: my pleasure.
4: Thank you. Art, first question for you. um, The HBCU football programs, as you know, they've changed a lot since your day. Um, Once... They had some of the best talent in the world, but as you know, with integration came many more opportunities at larger schools. I'm Just right. wondering, um, the, HBS, the HBSC has, has suffered since then. I'm just wondering, are, are, are you sad to see how things have changed?
8: Yes,
17: uh, I, I, I think the schools are still; uh, they still play a prominent role. Uh, just, just an unfortunate thing that uh, kids nowadays, at, during the time when I was coming up, of course. I grew up in South Carolina, so when I was coming out of high school, University of South Carolina, or uh, Clemson, uh, didn't recruit us. So the historical black colleges were an outlet for us. Uh, you had Florida A&M down south. You had in the state of South Carolina, you had Benedict, you had Allen. And I was recruited by most of the historical black schools, and I ended up going to a Maryland State College. And today, uh, you know, the kids can go just about anywhere. So... The big schools are coming in, and they're getting the cream of the crop, and you still have some some um, jewels in some of these schools, but not as many as they used
4: to be. Yeah, well, I know Ron tells me that you actually wanted to go to Grambling, and that Eddie Robinson gave you a bus ticket to get you on campus, but instead you ended up at Maryland Eastern Shore. Could you tell us how that happened?
17: Well, uh, what happened is that was we had that in 1964 when I graduated. We had, you know, they had a high school all-star game for white for white kids, but there was nothing for the black kids. So that first that year, they started a black all-star um, game for the black kids that were going to school in the state of South Carolina, upper state versus lower state. And I met, uh, I, you know, I heard a lot about grandma and Maryland State, and Eddie Robinson came down for the practices for the game. Uh, I also played in that in the basketball game. So he offered me a scholarship, said, I'd like for you to come to Gramlin, I think you'd be a great asset to us. And I said, wow, Eddie Robinson offered me a, con- uh, a scholarship. Then uh, the coach from Maryland State, who was a, a high school coach in South Carolina, just got the job at Maryland State, but I heard about Roger Brown and people like that that went to Maryland State. So, wow, that's that's huge. And so I decided I was going to go to Gramlin. And then and Grambling, office Robinson called and said, look, we're sending you a bus ticket. We're going, we're going to have you come on in uh, to Grambling. I said, okay. And then in the meantime, the coach from Maryland State called and said, well, uh, we're coming to pick you up. I said, oh, my goodness. So <laughs> my brother, I told my brother, I said, tell the coach from Maryland State when he comes, you don't know where I am. So I'm, I'm hiding <laughs> from the guy. And he came. He came to the house. My dad was at work. I, I lost my mom a couple of years earlier. My dad was at work, and he told my brothers, "You tell him I'm not leaving here until I see him and I see your dad." I said, "Oh my!" So I went home, and I told him the same thing. I can't go anywhere without my dad. My dad came home, and he told Mr. Shell, "I promise. You, I can promise you one thing. If your kid goes to school, he'll graduate in four years if he applies himself." And that's all my dad needed to hear was to graduate from college. And he said, Oh, you got it. Next thing I know, I was in a station wagon on my way up to
4: Maryland State. <laughs> it's a great story. Any regrets about not getting to play for uh, Eddie Robinson?
17: Uh, no. When I saw Coach Robinson years later, I told him that story. He said, "God, I did a poor job of recruiting. That was awful."
4: <laughs> well, I was interested to hear you say that you played basketball at that uh, at the All Star game. And You were you were a good basketball player, correct? Uh,
17: yeah, I played uh, played four years of high school basketball, only two years of football. Well, basketball was my first love, man. I wow. loved to play that game. Wow. And then uh, when I went to college, uh, of course, when you went to to the small schools like that, if you could play sports, you played more than one sport. So I ended up playing. Basketball, two and a half years there at Maryland State, as well as playing football for four years. So i, I th- always thought basketball helped me with my game on the football
4: field. The NBA didn't come knocking for you. I right? didn't come looking for you. No,
17: no I wasn't. <laughs> maybe if I was a, a few inches taller, maybe, but no. Uh-uh. Okay.
4: Um, well, I know you, you. You went to Maryland State from Charleston, and of course later you, you went from Maryland State to Oakland. Yes. Which was the more difficult adjustment for you?
17: Um, you know, when you leave home for the first time and you go away from your family, that's a difficult situation. But we we were, I, would, I went to a situation where the players at the school at the time, the seniors, the upperclassmen, were, were, were very good to incoming young people. And so the transition, it was a small school now, Maryland State. When I graduated from that school, we had like, as a co-educational school, when I graduated, we had like 600 and maybe 50 people in the school. So you had a lot, a lot of athletes on the on the, on the campus, and you had some young ladies and the instructors. But the main thing about that is I got a chance to know all the instructors that I had classes under. And if I had problems, I could always go talk to them and say, I'm having trouble learning this, and can you give me an idea of how to make sure I get this into my brain? So. All things being equal, I'd go back to that same school again. Even the way things are now, if I could go back and have the same kind of teammates I had, same kind of professors, I would still go back. Wow. But going to Oakland, it was that's a that's a great that's a big move. Yeah.
16: Right. So
17: you go to Oakland, and again, all of the uh, um, all of the, the people that the, had just come up the Super Bowl playing the Packers, so I was excited about that, and. Uh, I went there, and I got acclimated, and uh, again, they had veterans that took care of us, They showed us the way, where to go, where not to go, how we do things here with the Raiders. This this is what you need to do. You can conduct yourself in a way, as a professional, then you won't have any problem. But if you don't, you're going to have a problem with the team, and you're also going to have problems with us. So the veterans kind of led the way. So it was a family atmosphere for me. When I went to college, and also with the Raiders.
4: We're speaking with Art Shell on the Talk of Fame Network, Hall of Fame tackle Art Shell on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffame.net. And Art, um, I think it's uh, roughly 10% of NFL Hall of Famers played at the HBCU, um, mm-hmm. and one of them was quarterback James Harris. We just had him on this program, <laughs> um, but yeah. but. But that's right, Shaq. And, and we saw him at, at Canton this past weekend. I talked to him for a while, and he's uh-huh. a great guy. But anyway, roughly 10% of all Hall of Famers played at, at those colleges and universities. How much pride do you take in that?
17: take a lot of pride in it, because we came a long, long ways through tough times to get to where we, where we got to, and we took advantage of the, you know, the coaching that we got. We took advantage of the, the teachings that we got from the instructors at the school, and when we left the schools, I, I felt that we were ready to go out and, you know, and challenge, and challenge in the world to become successful. And that's all we asked for, get a good education, and have a chance to go play the game of football. And mm-hmm. then you, when I went to Oakland, you know, we had maybe four or five guys on the team that was from historically black schools, at least that many. Right. So, right. you know, uh, it, but it was a good experience for me, and I relished the time that I, times that I played and uh, went to school at the historically black school.
4: Well, I covered one of them that uh, Shaq mentioned on uh, on the program earlier, and that was Charlie Joyner. And when I saw him in Canton, where I saw both Charlie and and, and James Harris, James said, this is the greatest slot receiver who ever played, <laughs> the greatest slot receiver. I, I said, I, I covered him for a lot of years. He was a Hall of Fame wide receiver, but more importantly, he's a Hall of Fame guy. I, I love Charlie yeah. Joyner. Yeah, um,
17: Charlie's a great guy. Again, Eddie Robinson did a wonderful job. At grandma, at grandma State to um, raise those raise those kids. They were kids. They raised those right. kids and they're becoming the men that they are now.
4: Right. Well, as you know, the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame has taken over the Black College Hall of Fame, and, and they've moved it to where we were last weekend, which is Canton. Yeah. Do, you, do you see that as a chance to have the story of those college programs and the athletes who played there? Do you see that as a chance to have them told? And, and how important is it that that story is told?
17: I think it's very important. That, that, you know, we, we played the game, uh, we came through, we found a way to, to go to school, and historically black schools were there for us. And, and we wanted to be as good as anybody else. And I think based on what we had with the coaching we had and with the, uh, the school, the teams that were out there, we played a good brand of football, obviously, because there was not a day when I was at uh, Maryland State that we didn't have when we practiced there weren't scouts on the football on on the field. They were out there and and I was amazed at that. And then at the end of my rookie my freshman year, I started getting letters from pro teams, which was astonishing to me. Yeah, who 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 how did how do they know me? So it's because they were out they were out there looking for talent. And especially AFL, you know, they were new the new league and they wanted talent no matter where they were. So but it's a it's a great thing that we have that um that uh, Hall of Fame, people will get a chance to see exactly what occurred at those schools, and we won't let the let the name or the brand of football that we play die
4: out. Nobody know anything about it. They've got your helmet on display there. You know that? Where? At the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and it's Which got one? in the. It's it's a Raider helmet. It's in the um, uh, Black College Hall of Fame, and it's got a crack down the middle of it. So you must have been banging heads with somebody. You must have been banging. It's
17: amazing. You look at those doggone helmets, and uh, I know the one, I got one in my my basement here. uh, I think it's the first one I wore. I look at the things, and how in the devil did we wear those (laughs) things? How did we survive, you know?
4: It's like like a piece of plastic. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I've got a question I want to ask you here, and it's one that James uh, Harris brought up last segment, and, and we've got about a minute and a half left, but he okay. said he, he felt Eldridge Dickey was the most talented quarterback he'd ever seen coming out of those schools, and he was ultimately named, of course, the quarterback in the all-time HBCU team. Now, he was the first black quarterback drafted in the first round. He came to o- Oakland, as you know, with U as the 25th pick in 1968. The second-round sure. draft pick? Was Kenny Stabler, exactly right. you were the third round draft pick. Now, Eldridge ended up moving to wide receiver, and Stabler, of course, as we know, became a Hall of Fame quarterback. Yes. Did right. Eldridge Dickey get a fair chance?
17: From my perspective, I thought he got a fair chance. I don't know at the time uh, how serious he was of, of, of putting in the time to become a top notch quarterback, but the guy was so talented, you know. And when you know, look, when he came out of college, he was so good in college. You know what they call him? Do you know what they called him? No. They call him the Lord's
12: Prayer. <laughs> what?
17: what <laughs> I never a heard great. like that. That's what he I haven't called. heard
12: anything like that either. Yeah,
17: that's what he was called in school because he was so good. This guy for getting the game and throw five or six touchdowns like it's nothing. And you know, and he was, he was spoiled a little bit, you know, cause cause of who he was in college. But I've never seen a guy like, and I Shaq is right. I've never seen a guy as talented as this kid. Eldridge could throw the ball with his left hand just as good as he could throw with his right hand I've never seen anything like it I, watched, I used to watch him you know you are fooling around and, you know, and you're watching guys just before practice start, guys are throwing the ball around he's throwing the ball with his left hand just as good as he threw with his right wow. it's amazing
4: <laughs> well uh, too bad he didn't play today I think he probably could have gotten a shot today and start today oh, but
17: no uh, yeah. telling what he could have done
4: Art thanks so much for the time and thanks for the memories I'll let Ronnie know what he missed
17: Okay, thank you, and I appreciate you having me on.
4: You got it, Art. That was Hall of Famer Archelle. Up next, it's a Two-Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
17: This is Ozzie Newsom, drill Manager of the Baltimore Ravens, and
16: you're listening to Talk of Fame Network.
13: Progressive presents Mind Flowness with Flow.
16: You are in the middle of the ocean on a raft, finding coverage options that fit your budget as you listen to the ebb and flow of the tide. Your budget, the ebb our coverage the flow why tetherball isn't considered a real sport unknown be at one with your
13: budget with the name your price tool visit progressive.com today progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law
7: this is the talk of fame network on sb nation radio here are your hall of fame voters ron borges rick goslin and clark judge playoffs we'll talk about
12: playoffs you kidding me
4: well, I hear that, Wilson. I know what it means. Ron, it means you're headed for the 19th hole, but only you only after leading us through another two-minute drill brought to you by Burger King Breakfast. So get us started, Ronnie.
6: Well, boys, second-round pick Ryan Anderson says Alabama practices are tougher than the NFL. Who's right, Nick Saban or the NFL PA? Nick Saban, your walk
4: to the PGA Media Center is tougher than NFL practices, Ron.
5: Saban, you have to hit in August to have your bodies ready by September.
6: Arizona running back David Johnson recently showed up at a fantasy football convention to sell himself. Are you buying? Only if I can trade him for Tom Brady.
5: Yes, sir. Fantasy football is all about touchdowns, and no one scores more.
6: Attendance was low at the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Was it a mistake to play the game before the induction? No, it wasn't. Maybe people, Ron,
4: just want to age differently than sitting through filibusters.
5: The mistake was playing the game, period.
6: Speaking of the game, the Hall of Fame game had more TV viewers than the NBA All-Star game. What do you prefer watching, basketball stars or future members of the NFL unemployment line? Tough choice. How about elective surgery?
5: They play a smidge of defense in the Hall of Fame game, they play none in the NBA All-Star game.
6: Pittsburgh Post-Gazette claims U2 ruined Heinz Field, then they claimed they didn't. Is U2 in the landscape business, the music business, or the demolition business? They're in the pro bono business.
5: You 2s in the money business, and so are the Steelers if they care to stage a concert at Heinz that close to the start of the season.
6: Greater right left tackle Donald Penn is holding out for a new contract. Raiders management is holding the line. What's Derek Carr holding? His breath.
5: I'll tell you what he's not holding. Without his left tackle, he's not holding the ball for more than two seconds back there.
6: Bob Kraft gave Tom Brady's mother a Super Bowl ring. Where does that leave everybody else's mother? With rings around the collar.
5: If it's like Tom's footballs, it's a miniature
6: ring. Joe Flacco has a bad back. Is Ryan Mallet the cure or John Harbaugh's pain in the neck? Ryan Mallett couldn't cure a sore throat with penicillin.
5: Cut Mallet. signed ah. Gary Quazzo.
4: That's, That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank George Coons, Archel, James Harrison, Gary Mars for joining us, Derek Burns for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. Or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. Another reminder that the Talk of Fame Network is brought to you by Geico Insurance, where 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on car insurance. For more details, go to geico.com.
6: Hi, this is Kenny Houston,
4: and you guys are listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
6: Daddy, where do babies come from?
12: Uh... Well, uh, honey? Mommy
6: went to the store. Oh,
12: well, you see, um, well, there's a mommy and a daddy, right? Right. And see, when they call Geico, uh, they could save a bunch of money on car insurance. Oh,
6: really? And that makes them happy?
3: Yes,
12: that makes them very happy.
6: That's good. Yeah.
14: Well, I'm glad we could have this talk, sunshine. (laughs) GEICO,
3: because saving 15%
13: or more on car insurance is always a great answer.
14: Hi, Tom Bodette trying to align my chakras around this hot yoga thing. Yep, they finally found a way to make working out even more uncomfortable. Well, at least with Motel 6, you've got one less thing to sweat. They've got clean, comfortable, and now completely updated rooms at a great low price. So the only thing you're stretching is your dollar. Sounds like my kind of place to namaste. I'm Tom Bodette, and we'll leave the light and the AC on for you. Book online at motel6.com.
0: Start your own color party with colors like Champagne and Jubilee. Ask Sherwin-Williams and save 35% on paints and stains during the Love for Color sale, August 11th through the 14th. Your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams paint store is right around the corner. Find it at sherwinwilliams.com save. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.
12: A good night's sleep starts with the right pillow. That's where MyPillow comes in. And now for a limited time, just go to MyPillow.com, click the Radio Listener Special tab, and use promo code SKY to get two premium king or queen pillows and two additional go-anywhere travel pillows, all for 50% off and free shipping. That's MyPillow.com. Promo code SKY or call 1-800-635-1825. 1-800-635-1825.